Our sermon this afternoon is from Mr. Matt Steele. It is entitled, Talking Points for the Christian Who Doesn't Keep Christmas. I'm going to keep working on my sermon titles till they get to four lines long. Three lines long is just not good enough. <clears throat> I think we're all uh, probably familiar with the concept of uh, talking points. Heard that phrase before, you know, that we have talking points. And, you know, we, we probably think about uh, sales and marketing when we hear that. You know, the elevator speech, um, you know, the, from the... The, the ground floor where everybody gets in the elevator and somebody says, oh, what do you do? And you can give them the elevator speech, uh, ostensibly to sell your company, right? The, the company that you're working for. We're also familiar with talking points when it comes to um, politics. You know, uh, there's, there's a lot of talking points in the last few weeks in, in the UK, of course, um, and uh, the, the, really the, the party that, that kept the message, I guess, the most simple uh, ended up winning in, in those elections. And their talking point was, get Brexit done. Very, very simple talking point. And it, it, it meant, at least to the people of the UK, something. Um, and then, unfortunately, the rest of the world probably also knows about what Brexit is now and can write entire papers on the, the mess that it is. But we're very familiar with this. And then, you know, we, we use it in marketing and public relations. And in a sense, it is just a very simple, easy to understand statement that can be said in a short period of time, but communicates a message. So Wikipedia's definition puts it this way. A talking point in discourse is a succinct statement designed to support persuasively one side taken on an issue. Such statements can either be uh, freestanding or created as retorts to the opposition's talking points and are frequently used in public relations, particularly in the areas heavy in debate, such as politics and marketing. So, talking points. For us as Christians, we are actually instructed to have talking points. Do you realize that? We are actually supposed to have some talking points. And, and it's interestingly, I feel like we have, we've touched upon these a couple of these scriptures frequently in, in the last uh, maybe few months or so. Turning over to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. So we would call that talking point. Be ready with our talking points. Essentially, we're told to, to be prepared with succinct messages that explain the hope that we have. Explain why we do what we do. Why, for example, we don't keep Christmas or Easter or why we don't go to church on Sunday. Or the positive of why we do do the holy days and, and do practice the things that we practice. Having prepared answers. And that might sound, you know, to the free-spirited, that might sound, well, that's a little restrictive. I mean, 
let the spirit flow. The spirit's going to flow. But being prepared ahead of time is an effective tool. Helps us communicate. If you're like me, though, when the questions come up, you probably don't feel very prepared. Right? Because they come up at times that you are not ready for. You are in the middle of doing something. You're at work, and you're working away, and somebody says something, and before you know it, somebody's asked the question. Oh, what? why don't you do that? And why don't you do that? Oh, you go to church on Saturday. Huh, that's strange. Are you Jewish? We're not ready for those moments, oftentimes. I, at least, I feel like I'm not. I'm like, uh, well, let me, let me put this down for a second, and uh, let me give you an answer. And then there's the context, right? At work, you've got to be careful what the answer sounds like. Out in the community, in your neighborhood, well, you don't want to antagonize your neighbors. You want to be friends. You want to maintain open conversation with them and an opportunity to, to talk to them in the future, right? You don't want them to move away because you said something about how they practice their faith. So we're often going about our daily lives busy, working or shopping or doing the normal things that we might do in our community. And then we are asked for our talking point. And then sometimes we have the reverse effect. And it's like, okay, well, I want to give you the entire story. Because how can I boil it down to one set of talking points? Now, of course, we need to read the situation, don't we? If somebody asks, so why don't you keep Christmas? I thought you were a Christian. Are they really asking for you to give them a 45-minute sermon? Because we feel like that's what it would take, right? Maybe a couple hours. You want to come over for coffee? We can really get into this. Eh, no, no, it's, it's okay. Never mind. I was just curious. And off they go. Right? So a talking point would probably be a really good tool for us. A quick, succinct statement that helps them understand what we believe. And if they're interested, maybe they'll ask another question. It could be from friends could be from family. And we have to also remember, right, we don't want to alienate family. Or maybe we do. We don't want to alienate friends, our neighbors. So we, we want to be considered in our answer. And so talking points can help us with that too. So we don't just open mouth and insert leg. We want to be careful. As I said, most of the times I've been asked these types of questions, it's normally from religious people, um, just my experience, uh, or people that are at least aware of Christianity or faith or of, of some kind. And oftentimes, as I say, there are Sunday Christians are asking questions because they're kind of confused. It's like, but, but you're a Christian. You don't, you don't do the most Christian of holy days or holidays, or you don't keep Christmas. That's confusing. And it's interesting because oftentimes these individuals, and I can think of, of some right now, I can see their face in my mind, they want to have a relationship with you. 
We at other times have talked about the Bible. We've talked about faith. We've talked about the challenge of being a Christian in the workplace. And we have a lot in common, and I don't want to alienate them and say, well, you're a pagan. We don't want to do that, do we? Because their intention is to build a bridge with us, and we need to use that bridge to share the hope that we have, oftentimes in common. The principles of grace, of faith, and a shared confession that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. They may be just at a different place in their journey. So you might have similar, similar conversations. You may have people who are just nominally Christian, who are also confused about your strange behavior, and why you don't do certain things, and why you do other things that are different vastly from the larger Christian community. The other f the reason I feel that we should do this is, frankly, is to take time to prepare, because this is a type of ministry work. And we're told by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, uh, chapter 4 and verse 2, and as I like to remind everybody, we wrote this down here on the, on the stage underneath this podium, the scripture reference. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. So thinking about this, what did Paul mean when he said, in season? What did he mean in season? Well, there are seasons, right? Did he mean, you know, spring summer, winter, fall. Well, you're always in a season. You're in one of those. So what seasons is he talking about? Is he talking about religious seasons? Quite possibly. And is he just talking about the seasons that we observe? Or is he talking about the seasons that those that we are sent to, to preach to and to teach to and to call to come to the knowledge of the truth. Is he talking about those seasons? Right? Even though we may not celebrate Christmas, we can take this approach to this season. In fact, we can do which with uh, the same thing that all the marketers do in this time of year, right? We can market to all of these people out here keeping Christmas in this season and preach the word. Share the truth. We can give them some talking points for the reason of the hope that lies in it, within us. We should be ready in every season. Not just the ones that we practice or the ones that we celebrate. But if you remember but one of one of the, uh, I think, the coolest stories about Paul and how he was able to just adapt to the, the people around him and the season that was going around him, we find in Acts chapter 17. He walks right into the midst of one of the most pagan places on the face of the earth, and he's going to preach the gospel. Right? Having the boldness to do that. He's not worried about it at all. And you and I would be like, how do, 
How do we even connect with these people? We, don't, we have nothing in common, do we? And yet, we find in verse 22, it says, And then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, I knew I would not say that right, and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For, uh, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Now, that's cool. Because he identified an area that he could connect with them. A little crack in their, in their intellectual process, in their doctrine, or whatever you want to call it. And he could just put a wedge in there and open that up. Wait, you're going you're to tell us about this God that we kind of worried about offending? Yes, I am. Wow, well, let's, let's hear this. And then he proceeded to tell them the gospel. And so I think we should look at this time of year, look at this Christmas season that we get so annoyed with because we just want to go and get our regular groceries. And what's everywhere? Christmas stuff. And all the sales and the extra people that come out of the woodwork. Do they make more people at Christmas time? Because it feels like that, doesn't it? We were coming to church, and you guys may have seen it on Highway 169, and it's backed up for a mile, two miles, so they could get their Christmas present. Amazon, the reason for the season. Just order it online, folks. And that way you won't get in the way of my shopping. But we should look, right, at this opportunity and maybe, maybe do some things Maybe say a few things that sound like we're going to share what Paul did about the unknown God. And let people ask us the question. And be prepared with our talking points. So let me ask you a question. And I, w I really do want participation here. I want you to be thinking about this. What kind of questions do you get asked at this time of year, or have you been asked at this time of year that you could have a talking point for? Anybody? Mark? Right? Isn't that the day he was born? Or sometimes the opposite, right? Well, I know he wasn't born on that day, but what's wrong with celebrating it on Ooh, you've got five hours, I could tell you. What else? There's lots of you out there, fella. Yeah. So, I'm doing it for God. Right? Ask Israel how that went when they started trying to worship God in the pagan ways. Yeah. What else? Right. 
Yeah. They'll bring the tray in. Do not cover it in glitter and all the tinsel and all of this stuff. And you have all these Christians with that in their Bible, right? In their house. I know somebody at work that has seven Christmas trees around their house. Seven. That's too much work. Chantel? Very confused, isn't it? Yeah. People are getting offended over things that are don't make sense of themselves. Yeah. Other things. Kids, what have you been asked if you went back to school or maybe by your friends, your Christian friends, after Christmas? Anybody? Uh-huh. <laughs> You didn't get anything? Yeah, or, you know, oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Or, um, what did Santa Claus bring you for Christmas, right? Father Christmas. At least when I was growing up, because my mom, my mom did Christmas. I'm a good Baptist. At least when I was growing up, all the the little tags that said where the presents came from, they came from people. And at the very least, she was making sure that I understood that they were coming from people that loved me. It's a Thanksgiving gift. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that that's a good that's a good compromise, right? We don't want to cut off that opportunity to communicate with our friends and our family. Um, I think probably when I gave up doing Christmas, it may have been thought by the rest of my family that I just didn't want to buy them gifts anymore. Sean? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. Yeah, I've, I've heard that a lot.
Well, so that kind of goes along. Renee, you were telling me something about um, social workers or something asking parents to not, what was that, give gifts? Right. Yeah, especially for little kids. They don't understand that. Brian? little kid what is that why would you just say a little kid is bad yeah that, that's heartbreaking some others that I had down here was uh, did you have a nice Christmas how do you answer that it's an opportunity right yeah right uh, yeah I enjoyed the time off oh yeah me too have you done all your Christmas shopping as much as I'm going to Right? But that may be an answer that we can just blow them off with. But did we just turn our back on an opportunity to use one of our talking points? Right? And so when we get these questions, can we read the situation? Is it just a friendly, you know, it's kind of like when people say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, well, I'm going to have the surgery tomorrow. And they don't want to know that, right? Is it one of those or is it a genuine did you have a good Christmas or, or, or so on? So thinking about those kinds of questions, what I thought I would do is offer just one of my answers, just to kind of maybe get the, the juices flowing a little bit. And I think it would be good for us to just spend some time and think about some questions you may have been asked and write down some talking points. So I'm going to give you a talking point on, on one. I hoped to kind of dig into more, but, but frankly, looking at one talking point and then exploding the truth behind that, right? Because hopefully they'll ask another question and another question and another question. And you never know where, you, where that conversation will end up. So I thought I would tackle the biggest question of all, why don't you keep Christmas? I thought you were a Christian. Such a simple question. But where do you start? Like I said earlier, that's huge. I could write an entire book on why I don't keep Christmas and all the different facets, all the different reasons. An avalanche of scriptures and answers and you almost want to just download it, right? Well, here, I know a Vulcan mind melt. Can I just give it to you all at once? And we might be tempted to literally try and do that and throw out as much as we can before they start to go, okay. And you're weird. Right? And move away from us. It'd be like, well, for the Christmas reference, it would be like eating an entire Christmas cake all at once. Which Mark knows what that is. That's an incredibly heavy fruit cake covered in icing. Nobody's going to consume that all at once. So, why do I keep Christmas? 
Well, I could say this. Well, I used to. I used to keep Christmas. I used to celebrate my Savior's birth on the 25th of December. I used to sing all the Christmas carols. I used to look forward to the Salvation Army being out in the street and, and their, with their band, and they would play these beautiful hymns with, with uh, brass instruments. Just fantastic. Great memory. I used to do all of that. And then I found out that most of it was a lie. Okay? Going to get their attention with that, right? Most of it was a lie. I was lied to about the birth of my Savior, about when it happened, and this lie hid the true meaning of his birth. I learned that from a ver the very beginning of creation, God intended it to send us his son, and that he was going to tabernacle amongst us, and by doing so, save us. God gave us a time to remember the birth of Jesus, and it's not Christmas. It is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I know that there are different ideas about when the birth of Jesus happened, but I'm talking about the concept of God dwelling with us. This is when I remember his birth, his life, and his kingdom to come. That would be my elevator. That would be my talking point. Or something along those lines. And I've probably said something like that with, you know, maybe more or less emphasis. And they do I have the relationship with them that they'd be not offended if I said that Christmas was a lie? <laughs> Maybe we would alter that just for our audience a little bit. It might seem a little bit heavy too, but hey, they asked. And sometimes you get a follow-up question. Sometimes they'll ask, well, okay, well, so what is this Feast of Tabernacles? Aha. Now we can have a conversation. And other times they may go, okay, great, that's, that's interesting to know, and move on with their day. But that would be the kind of talking points that I would bring. But let me give you, because you're a captive audience, you have to be here. Let me give you the, the reason why I would answer it that way. Because if they were to say, what is this Feast of Tabernacles? That's the dream answer, right? Well, tell me more about this. We're here at this, this work party or whatever it may be. I've got some time. Let, let's, let's talk about it. Tell me what you mean. Well, firstly, I might turn to a scripture that they would know very well. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to 
to you marry your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Now, I might then ask a question here. What does the name Jesus have to do with saving people from their sin? That sounds like a silly question. Well, we know that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. But back then, they didn't. So, if we are capable of winding our minds back a little bit and, and not looking at this scripture in the light of the first advent, if we look at it as though Jesus hasn't arrived yet, he's, he's in Mary's womb right now, what would this mean to somebody hearing that? What does the name Jesus have to do with saving people from their sin? Well, it's all about tabernacle. It's all about dwelling. It's all about God being with us. We get a succinct view of this. So I might jump over and go to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 6. It says, now when these things uh, being thus prepared, talking about the, the tabernacle. The priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part of the, the high priest went once a year, not without blood. For he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way to the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic. For the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regards to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, and various washings, and fleshly ordinances opposed until the time of the Reformation. But Christ came as a high priest of good things to come with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and with calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having attained eternal redemption. Now the reason that these are tied together is because the concept to the hearer, to Joseph, when he heard this from, from the angel, he would have, I think, linked being saved from your sins by atonement at the tabernacle or later the temple. Because these are the places where your sins are taken away. They're not taken away at any other point. It is in the atonement process that we get our sins taken away. And that's very much pictured in ancient Israel and then on into the temple. These places, through the history of the Bible, we can see are the places where sin can be removed. It is in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, that sins are removed. We forget about that. Because we now live after Christ has come, and we have the whole narrative of the New Testament to explain it to us. But for these folks, they were hearing this concept for the first time. So keeping that in mind, we go back to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, 
For that which is conceived of her, in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God dwelling with us, living amongst us, literally living amongst us. And then the Apostle John will take it further, wouldn't he? If we go to John chapter 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14, And the Word became flesh. And dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. As, as we might remember, as we would say to our friend, the word dwelt there in the Greek means to tabernacle, to temporarily dwell with us, to live in a tent, a temporary dwelling. In fact, the root word of this, Renee and I were kind of going on a Greek journey this morning. The root word for skin in the English is likely this word that was used in the Greek, which is S-K-E-N-E, skene or skinny, something along those lines. Possibly, quite possibly, the root word for skin. So before we had the inventions of canvas, right, and nylon, you know, all the different materials that tents these days can be made out of, how did they waterproof a tabernacle, a tent? With skin, with animal skin. And then if you can cast your mind back to the construction of the tabernacle, how many layers of skin do you think are on the tabernacle? three layers of animal skins over the tabernacle to make it waterproof. Interestingly enough, there are three layers in human flesh, in human skin. The dermis, the epidermis, and the subcutaneous. And I find that not to be accidental. But Jesus came in this flesh in our earthly tabernacle to be our Savior, to be the atonement, to be even the place for the atonement to take place in his flesh in this earthly tabernacle. He was literally dwelling with us in human form, in temporary ways to save us from our sins. And in many ways I really feel like he was the holy place. He was that perfect tabernacle in which our salvation was made. He was the full manifestation of the plan of God. He was the plan and the word made flesh, made skene, or being a dwelling place. The traditional Christmas card view of the birth of Jesus in the middle of winter with all the animals gathered around and 
a little halo around the baby's head. All of that is completely overwhelmed by the real truth of the plan of salvation. The mastery of God's plan. Where he said, this is how I'm going to do it. And I'm going to set up imagery and symbolism for me to dwell with you, for my son to dwell with you. And I'm going to play this story out through history. And then I'm going to make it happen right on time and in the perfect way so that he is our Savior. He gives us a deep and undeniable understanding of what the birth of his son really means. His name was to be called Emmanuel, God with us, and God dwelling in us. In the flesh, he became the place and the method, as I said before, for us to be saved from our sins. But that's not all, is it? Because if we go over to John 14, verse 22, Shortly before his trial and sacrifice, Jesus says this. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, How is it that you will be manifest, that you manifest to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said unto him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home, our abode, with him. Now, I had kind of forgotten about this, and I'm thinking in my mind, tabernacle. That God makes his tabernacle with us. And I was just, you know, doing my confirmation here before I started writing my notes. That's not the word used to. It's a different word. It's actually a different Greek word. And it implies a permanence. It implies a permanent residence. Not a temporary one. Isn't that interesting? We have lots of use of God tabernacling amongst us and tabernacling amongst the people. And we'll even jump to another scripture at the very end out there in the future where God will tabernacle with man again. But in this instance, the word was more permanent than that. And of course, in this same passage, Jesus says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you. I will never leave you. This is a permanent dwelling with us. Our tabernacle may change. We hope. Our body may change. But God is promising that he will always make his home with us through his son who has saved us, who came to dwell with us, Emmanuel, has now made a permanent home with us. A personal dwelling with us. But interestingly, in Revelation, as I mentioned before, it switches back to a temporary abode. After all the wars, after all the battles, all the suffering that mankind has brought to the world, after all of that, after the restoration of the millennium and the kingdom of God on the earth, after all of that is done. We read this in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death or sorrow or crying. There shall be no more pain. For all the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, <clears throat> Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. God dwelling with us again. And again. And yet, we've flipped back to this temporary dwelling instead of a permanent one that, that Jesus was implying in John. I'm not sure exactly of all the reasons why, but I suspect that it might have something to do with the fact the tabernacles, as we see from the example of Israel, are for doing what? For using for a while breaking them down, packing them up, and moving somewhere else. That's the reason you have a tabernacle. That's the reason that Israel had a tabernacle. They couldn't build a new stone building every place that they stopped. They took it with them, and God traveled with them. And I think in this revelation, in scripture, in revelation, we have this idea that the journey is not finished. <laughs> if we get down to this, this place when there's a new heaven and a new earth, it's, we're done. We've arrived. We're finished. No. It's a tabernacle. God is going to permanently dwell with us. He's making his permanent home with us. Yes. But it's a temporary one that we might just scoop up and move on to another place. Think about it. The universe is a pretty big place, isn't it? We're just going to leave all of that out there? Mr. Gregory, you have a point?
it makes us stand out, right? It, they remember, and I'm sure you did give him a really good point or two in the past about what you believe on that. Yeah. Now I can give you my notes. You can go talk to him about it all. <laughs> oh, even if he didn't have it, we're just going to knock on his door. But like I was saying, if you think about it, the universe is a very big place. And we're just going to leave all of that real estate out there untouched. That's just not in our nature. Because it's not in God's nature, clearly. I think the whole idea that God is presenting to us in Revelation is that we are going to continue to expand and move out into this creation that he's made and restore this creation that we often just see parts of the universe in absolute destruction. And maybe that's part of the process of tabernacling beyond the point of this new heaven and the new earth. It can hold more children on it. The universe can hold way more children than it does right now. Way more. And after several trillion years, when we filled this one up, what stops God from building another universe? Why not? Clearly likes kids. Even though we cause him so much trouble. When that universe becomes full, he might just make another and another. And it's all made possible because of what Isaiah told us. Reg read the second part of this chapter earlier. I want to read the first. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, given to us, tabernacling in us, with us, on this earth. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then notice this. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The universe is a big place. We're going to fill it with his government and with peace. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. That's the kind of leader we Reg was talking about. To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal, the power, the intensity, the will, the sovereign will of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So this is just one talking point. Now obviously, I wouldn't answer with all of that. I would answer with my small version and hope that maybe they would ask some more questions about tabernacles, about what it represents, about Jesus tabernacling with us. Small, powerful statements of faith might just smart, spark the imagination of those that we're talking to. And we don't know what seed it might plant, what question they may have later. And then maybe they'll 
do some more research. Maybe they'll come across some, some other person that, that practices the way that we practice. And they'll get a new layer and a new layer of God's truth. And who knows where God will take that seed once planted. So, why don't I do Christmas? Because the plan of God is much bigger.